This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 301 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing. And this week, I really wanted to address some of the issues that we are seeing and we are potentially going to see with this force isolation that are not being discussed. So the next two episodes are going to be with two of my original guests. This week is Julian Pinot, who was on my show on episode 5, episode 118, episode 201, and now 301. So firstly, that shows you how much I value his philosophy and his perception on many, many things. Um, but secondly, I want to underline with both these episodes, this is not to discredit any of the sensible isolation or the impact on certain hospitals or certain parts of the country, but there are many conversations that are not being had. We are being shown the worst case in some of these areas, and absolutely that is a real thing. But the areas of resilience, the areas of prevention, the impact of this force isolation definitely needs to be discussed as well where that middle ground i think is where a lot of the truth lies rather than these two extremes that we're seeing over and over and over again so i was so so glad to get julian pinot founder of strong fit back on the podcast and get his philosophy get what he's seen from a frenchman now living in the netherlands so a very different perspective outside of the u.s and get a different voice out. We are getting the same voices over and over and over again through uh, mainstream media. So I want to get a couple of well-respected people who I know have not only seen many things globally, but also walked the walk themselves. So before we get to this incredible interview, please just take a moment, go to whichever podcast app that you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show so you get notifications. Leave feedback. I do really, really love it when people write feedback about the show and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings, the more of them we get, the more we climb the virtual charts and the easier it becomes for people looking for a podcast like this to be able to find it. 
and then share these episodes. As I've said before, this is a free library for you, planet Earth. And all I ask is that you help share and get these amazing men and women's stories to the ear holes of everyone that needs to hear it. So with that being said, I introduce to you my fourth conversation with Julian Pinot. Enjoy. I want to say firstly thank you so much for taking the time to come back on for the third time now on the Behind the Shield podcast. Always my pleasure. So I know that um, my opening question is normally where are we finding you? Last time was Utrecht. Um, so I'm going to ask you again because I think it's a different answer. So where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Right now I'm in Amsterdam. We moved uh, like three months ago to Amsterdam. So I got like a really nice house in the center. Uh, we have like what, like four floors and then a dependent, like a, like a studio outside. And so it's, uh, it's, I, I like it. And Amsterdam is, I should know better, but like, it's so different from Utrecht. It's a bit, you see the same thing with Paris. You have Paris and then the rest of France. And then there's always some kind of a war going on between the two, by the way. But it's a bit the same time in Amsterdam. Like the, the vibe is very different. Beautiful. And what made you choose that specific place? Uh, food was a big one. <laughs> like, uh, like I love Holland, right? So don't, I don't want people to, uh, take this the wrong way. But, um, in Utrecht, like the food was, um, how to say it nicely. Blend is a good description. <laughs> I mean, and they like their bread and their fried food. Past that, everything was, I, I wanted a, a little bit more uh, excitement if you want. And then in, uh, in Amsterdam, there's a lot of great restaurants. It's funny, like there's a lot of, there's a lot more like small businesses, like small coffee shops, small restaurants in Amsterdam than there is in Utrecht. In Utrecht, it's mostly uh, franchises, like big, big, big stuff. You know what I mean, in Amsterdam, you see uh, so many small businesses, restaurants, coffee shop. It's, um, it reminds me of like, it's like a quiet London. Okay. Yeah. I mean, in that sense, so I like it a lot here. And then I found like, you know, places like run by two uh, Spanish dudes for Harmon Iberico. Uh, so I, I love Amsterdam. Amsterdam is a cool place. Brilliant. Well, so it's going to be a great conversation because obviously you and I both have traveled a lot. Um, and I want to start right off the bat with your, what you've seen and your philosophy on this pandemic that we've gone through. Right. So, yeah, yeah, we were talking that a little bit. So, Okay, so I'll tell what I see because I'm someone who looks for patterns always. And what I see so far in the response of different countries is a, is a judgment on the healthcare of that country. Like the response of government is based on, their, on the healthcare system that they have put in place. I don't think it has anything to do with people. Like if you look at numbers, like last year, 8 million people died from the flu worldwide. 8 million. Like... Uh, 8 million people died from air pollution. Those are numbers from the World Health Organization, by the way. So, And then we are panicking for what is a tragedy, obviously, but still low numbers comparatively with uh, other diseases. So I don't, I think this is not done, this is not about people. This is about the healthcare of each country. So you have some countries, like you see in Holland, for example, they have an intelligent lockdown. But uh, what they call that, but you see mostly people in the streets. What we are not talking about is the, 
is the 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 healthcare system that we have in place in in you know Western civilization and the fact that people are not healthy, honestly, and we're still refusing to look at the numbers that the coronavirus is giving us toward who's getting hit more than others. Like you see a few statistics, but mostly the conversation is about panicking, right, and making making sure we don't crowd hospitals. Yeah, and then it seems like the highlighted ones are always that anomaly, like oh, this person was twenty eight. And they died rather than, yeah, but that was 1% of the people that actually died overall in that town. Exactly. It's still mostly, like if you look, age, older people are the ones getting hit the most. And after that, it's obesity from what I read. And after that, it's underlying conditions. So like we, we could use this. What I would wish for, because this is not going to be the only one, like it's going to happen again, that there's going to be another virus. This one has a one person death rate, which is fairly low, it's high compared to the flu, but it's like SARS was like 20 or 30%. You know what I mean, the, what I would like to see is that we use this as a way to go, okay, something is wrong. If a virus with a 1% death rate is enough to stop the global economy, what happens when the zombie apocalypse shows up? You know what I mean, what, what happens when the next virus shows up? Are we going to do this every two years where we shut down the, the, the entire economy? Because, like, for example, in the U.S. right now, they're throwing numbers like 20 million people unemployed, uh, 50% of small businesses going bankrupt. Those are insane numbers. Like, the, 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 What is going to do to people like, you know, like just the drug addiction, alcoholism, like domestic violence, uh, depression, anxiety, people getting bankrupt that's going to ruin their life like we are not talking about the consequences of what we're doing right now in because we are trying to hide i think the fact that the healthcare business is getting trampled by this virus but that in itself should tell us something you, you know what i mean yeah like we we cannot handle one virus that has a one percent death rate yeah well actually it's funny i did i did some um digging into some statistics last night um, and I want to look at the global effect. And then obviously, as you're looking at numbers like the small island, that their, their percentage is higher because they only have, you know, 10,000 people on the whole island. So I did the, the world. And overall, the mean death rate in the world is 17 people per million of the population, which isn't even close to 1%. You know what I mean? So when, when you, when you really kind of look through the deep, deep statistics, they're not startling at all and i'm not belittling the isolation i'm not saying that it's not tragic that every single person that we lost but that's why i started this podcast to stop people from dying too but it's the misinformation that is so nauseating yeah we have an infodemic that's what we have again eight million people died from the flu last year you know what i and it's not to say like it doesn't matter people dying now as you said my problem with all this is like again eight million people died from air pollution last year how come we didn't freak out about that? Yeah, or we'll stop the cars like we have now. Yes, that's what I want to ask. Like in a 204 or 205, there was a heat wave in Paris, right? Uh, Paris was not ready for 40 plus degrees Celsius, like so 110, whatever it was at the time. Uh, because Paris, usually you get like, you know, if you're in the 80s, it's super hot. And suddenly you went like 105 or whatever it was. In one week, 15,000 people died. Really? I didn't realize the numbers were that high. I remember the heat wave. 15,000, mostly old people because they died from heat exposure. Because, you know, they lived uh, like under the roof on the because it was cheaper on the last floor. 
and then there was no air conditioning because there's never there was never a need for air conditioning in in Paris. There was no ventilation, and so a lot of mostly old people died from dehydration and heat exposure. Like there were so many people dying and so fast, they didn't know where to put the bodies, so they had to use the slaughterhouses in the center of Paris. You don't know about it because no one cared. Because again, like you you couldn't get an infodemic out of that one because then you have to start to say what you have to start to say global warming and in two or four. They didn't really want to go there. Uh, you, you know, so what I don't understand is the the response now com- compared to every other thing we've been trying to talk about, even you and I, that, that doesn't make even a ripple in the water. Like I remember uh, Rob Wolf talking about the fact that within five years, it's expected that in the US, they will have 100 million pre-diabetic people. 100 million pre-diabetic people. This will crash the healthcare way more than the coronavirus, by the way. Uh, but how come we don't, this creates absolutely no ripple in the water, but a virus that has, again, like a very small death rate is crashing the economies of countries left and right. And again, I think it's because it's showing how the, the actions of most governments on the healthcare system in their country is inadequate, to say the least, and they are trying to hide that fact. So I don't think it's about people. I think it's about government covering their own ass because the, the healthcare system that they, that they have is very poor. If you look at the countries that have the toughest lockdowns, you have France, you have Italy. So Italy has an older population, like older than 65, that is at 25%, I think. So that's why they're getting hit so hard. You have the French system, which is like, you know, like borderline. Uh, it's very, very much socialist. But so the way everybody was relying on on the on the, the healthcare system, but that is in tremendous amount of debt. So anything that increases that, they can't take. And so that, I think that's what you see, is you see the healthcare systems across the world that are the worst are getting hit the hardest. So I don't think it's about us. I think it's about that. Yeah, well, I've talked about this a few times in in the NHS in England. I mean, I remember for years and years them cutting and cutting, and I will still to this day hold my hands up and say, I think it's the best healthcare system on the planet because if you are taking care of your people and you know you're all chipping in basically to make sure that everyone is taken care of, whether it's the very young, the very old, the infirm, and then the rest of us as we crash cars and all those kind of things, it's a great system. But you have to support that system. And what I'm seeing now is not like you said, it's not just Britons dropping in the streets, you know, like a zombie apocalypse. It's them getting sick and going to a system that was already run on a skeleton crew because these politicians cutting and cutting and cutting, and it's falling on the shoulders of the men and women in those buildings. The first response, exactly, but that's why they're getting, and then I think the media, like, in a way, is doing a disservice to the first responders by putting that hero thing, because then I think he hides the deeper problem. Not that they're not heroes, don't get me wrong. I, I value all of them on that one because they're doing the real work, right? But um, we're going to hide the problem by by treating them like that. The, the fact that, as you said, the NHS has been cutting the number of people, so putting a greater burden on them, and now finally it's showing. So me, what I would like to see is in, instead of going like, oh my God, those are heroic people, of course they are. And can we all go in the streets and torch the place down to actually make a difference this time. Because otherwise, yeah. what happens on the next one? 
Exactly. And we need that, we need that kind of support when there's not a crisis. When the politicians yes. are saying, we're going to cut the NHS, we're going to close these fire stations, we're going to, you know, right. re- re- put police officers one to a car, not two to a car. That's when we need them to step up, not, you know, at this moment. And it's the same with 9-11. We had so much kind of hero worship in the fire service after 9-11. And then fast forward a few years, now they won't even give benefits to the firefighters right. that are dying from 9-11 cancer, you know? so right. which was insane to me that this did not create an outrage. Like, so that's my problem with what I see in the media and people like being so, you know, like, like social responsibility and everything. I'm like, okay, but can we keep the intensity? Because exactly what you're talking about, um, 9-11, and then all the first responders that started dying from actually being there and helping people were, de- were denied benefits, died of cancer and the most horrible diseases out there. And no one batted an eye. It took like John Stewart or people like that to actually make noise on the subject. That is insane. That, to me, that is insane to see that. And I've been railing against um, healthcare for profit in the U.S. forever because what I saw me was a system that requires you it's for profit. So to make money requires to you to be sick, but not too sick. So the idea was we put people on pills at first, and then we're going to milk them and the insurance companies for like a few years to put them on pills. And then here and there, we're going to put surgeries. And that's how the system makes money. It's basically on interventions like surgeries or stuff like that. So of course, they're all freaking out because right now you have no pills to give and no surgeries to do. So the hospitals, are, I'm sure the healthcare money is losing a shit ton of money right now. And you can tell that the if the healthcare system, like the money system of the healthcare system falls down, I think the economy goes with it. But that, that's what they're yeah. talking about. It's like, why is the healthcare system like a corporate, like, you know, like the airline companies, like the airline companies cannot take two weeks of not working. So that means that we, we build them out in 2008. We're building them out again right now in the US where they still haven't learned the lesson. Like most corporations run basically either in debt or very close to it, which means like something goes wrong for three months, they all fall apart and we have to bail them out. So we should be complaining about that, by the way. But it seems to me that the healthcare is built exactly the same way, which means something goes wrong, the whole, sh- the whole ship sinks. Yeah. And, and so you and I obviously are coming from a place where, where we've both been standing on buildings, screaming prevention yes. and, and health in our countries for a long, long time. So it's not about, you know, just sneering and saying, you guys got it wrong. We, we've been trying to, trying to push this lesson for a long time. But the one thing that I talk about here in, in the US is, is like you said, it is a for profit system. So if you think about basic economics, there's no, money in in healthy people and there's no money in dead people so like you said it's just chronic disease management that they make all this money these these blood pressure pills and diabetes that most people will say yes you can absolutely reverse it with diet they're not they're not doing anything about that so this is the other thing is it's basically showing the in the, the fallacy of a lot of this disease management style medicine that has been sold to people for decades Right. And this is where I get pissed at the media is like, this is what we should be having a conversation about and pissed at politicians as well for not raising the subject. So like we all going into the hero worship again mode and we all are going like social responsibility and hashtag stays the fuck home and all that stuff. And I'm like, but we're still not addressing the problem that is going to come back on the next situation and make and then then what? And eventually we'll you know what I mean, like it's it's an it's an impossible situation. 
And what frustrates me the most is when people get super excited for six months because it's happening now and they're having like that fear response. And everybody is very excited right now about telling everybody to stay home and still not talking about fixing the real issue that will screw us the next time. Yeah. So, uh, well, getting to that specifically. So I think if my memory serves me right, that the Netherlands were actually taking a different approach to a lot of people with the isolation and they were... um going to basically ha- say, all right, let, let it hit us. Let's get this, you know, over with so we can move on. Is, is, have I got that right? Was, was it Holland that was that country? Um, actually, the one who did basically nothing was uh, Sweden. Oh, really? Sweden said uh, business as usual. Like, try, try, please be responsible and social distancing, but with a nice please at it. And I think they, they started to go at no gathering past 50, like, uh, Two weeks ago, but they basically kept all businesses open. So it's still the economy got affected, obviously, because social distancing had its effect. But it was asked, it was asked of the people there, but not forced. In Holland, we had what they call an intelligent lockdown, which means you can go out, but please keep like 1.5 meters in between people. And they closed restaurants and bars and things like this. But it's mostly so that it would prevent tourism. Yeah, well, that's a that's a, a thing that I've been talking about a lot. So I I lost my jo- uh, job as a stuntman temporarily. We're going to pick it back up when it opens up because of the theme parks, and I totally understand if we, the, if we're going to stop a virus spreading, you know, too fast and certainly spreading it in places that don't have it yet. The sporting events, the theme parks, the the, the cruises—that makes perfect sense. Absolutely, we need to we need to stop them. Yeah, but the, the the schools, like my little boy's you know, next door in the other room now doing his homeschooling, and there don't get me wrong, there's so many positives that have come out of this. It's a whole separate thing, but the schools are children that all live in the same neighborhoods that all congregate in that one school. That's how the local kids schools. are not dying anyway. No, kids but they're are not getting hit by the coronavirus anyway, but they're not <laughs> traveling either. They're going to the school and yes. then going home. So that's the thing yes. I don't understand is things like that are completely local. Those really should be able to carry on. And by the way, those kids, when they're outside, they play together. Yes. So, you know what I mean? So the whole thing makes like this is not a proper approach. I think we can all agree that groups past a certain amount should be forbidden. Like people know that. Like I don't think anybody's going to go to a festival outside of those fucking kids that go to, uh, you know, like I went to Florida. Spring break, yeah. yeah. Yeah, spring break. But short of that, most people will understand let's not do that. Right? I think most people agree. Cruise ship right now is a bad idea. Uh, stuff like that. But like tanking entire economies and like, again, like people don't seem to care about all the small businesses that are going to, like, I have, um, by the way, closing all gyms. How crazy is that? Why can't we say, like, only 10 people in the gym at a time and keep it two meters from each other? Most people, I think, would do that. Yeah, well, we do anyway. You think about it as you get a barbell to the face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, like, closing gyms, that's exactly the opposite of what we want. Like, people are going to be at home getting fat, not training. That weakens your immune system. Like, this is... This is insanity to me, what I'm seeing. Yeah. Well, we've, we talked a lot about mental health last time as well. And I think that's another element. I was talking to someone yesterday is everything that we have that is a positive coping mechanism, whereas the, the parks, the beaches, the, the gyms, the churches, you know, whatever, yeah, yeah, we've taken them away. And so I think what I'm worrying about, I'm hearing more and more there's a lot of domestic abuse happening at the moment. 
but I'm sure, you know, I'm lucky and I've talked about this a few times. I'm in a home right now with my family, my dog, you know, everything's great. My wife's still working. She's an optician. So she's able to go back to work and, uh, you know, keep earning. Oh, good. So she's not at home all day. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. But there's how many people are in an apartment right now on their own locked down, you know? So I think the mental health toll of this is terrifying. And by the way, like you've seen in the first two, three weeks, like you go outside and everybody's edgy. They don't even look at you in the eyes. <laughs> it's true. It's almost like they're angry at you. It's like, I didn't do anything. It wasn't me. I swear. <laughs> Forget I, about sneezing in public. But uh, like that, I, I don't know about you, but me, I felt it. Like, you know, the first months I was very edgy. I was almost like pissed all the day because every time I got out, I re you know what I realized? is how much I miss socialization, how much I miss watching people like couple, couples walking together, holding hands, smiling at each other, people talking to neighbors, to friends, la people laughing, people smiling. This is what I, I realized I missed the most because the first months people were so edgy, it put me on edge. Like I could feel the fear, the anger, like I could feel that. So I'm sure people feel it just like I do. And then they go back to the, just to go for groceries. Then they go back to the apartment. So basically it's like, a, it's 23 hours a day in your place. It's, this is jail. Like we know he messes with people, isolation like that. Like you will see a, a number of cases of anxiety, depression, when, when this starts to, we'll start to talk about mental health, like the, the impact on mental health like a few months from now, because of course not the media will jump on that one. Not that it's taking responsibility for anything, but then the media will talk about the consequences of the coronavirus for the next six months. And mental health will be a huge one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well kind of shifting focus a little bit. Um, you know, I think that, that here we've, we've probably gone way too far. I had a, a Dr. Kirk Parsley on and he was pointing out how the, the CDC guidelines for pa pandemics we're not even anywhere close to the, the what they call level one, yet we're sheltering in place like it's a level three, level four. So basically, like you said, zombie apocalypse. Yes. So, you know, I don't think that we're doing it very well at all here. You know, and then a lot of people that I respect are now coming out the, the shadows and saying this is wrong. Um, you know what they're doing in France right now is to get out of your house, you have to have a barcode. Really? I kid you not. This is Orwellian stuff. You have to print a paper that has the barcode on it to explain where you're going. And it's still May 11th. This is fucking insane. Yeah, and there have been parallels made with with you know the the creation of of uh, the Nazi strength in Germany. It sounds so far, and people always use that you know when they're talking about you know, the extreme right. But I think the parallel is getting control of the people, and I don't think that's the ultimate goal, of course. But we've got to look at you know where where your your civil liberties are being crossed, and it's definitely. You know, that there's, we're doing it for a selfless purpose. We're being told if we go out and socialize, we're going to make it worse. Even if you're healthy, you're going to spread it. So people are doing it for the right reasons. But like you said, the people telling us to do it are not doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. And by the way, so now, I mean, look at Pandora's box we open. Now government know how to control people. If I want to, the next act of terrorism will be a bioterrorism one because you want to crash an economy. This is worse than 9-11. So now you don't even need to, you know, blast uh, an airplane into a building. All you got to do is release the virus, something like that. And so, like, we open a Pandora's box on that one. Like, how to disturb the world? The best way is obviously a virus. Like, government's responses have been, uh, I, I don't understand. So conversely, who, which countries around the world are you seeing that are doing it well, do you think? 
Well, for example, Sweden is doing fine. No one wants to talk about it. I mean, like, I think Japan has opened schools again. Um, like, Norway and Denmark are reopening right now. Uh, you see, the Nordic people, as usual, man, they, they are the calmest, I guess. They, like, you know, we always talk, like, there's always that thing about socialism in the U.S., which is, I think, vastly misunderstood and confused with communism. But if you look at the way the, the, the Northern European countries have handled the crisis, and the healthcare, the way they were controlling it, they seem to have the most measured response overall. Yeah, and, they, and then even you look at you know education and many many topics where you know a nation would say we're the best in the world. When it, a lot of times you look at Scandinavia, they are doing it so well. Prisons, um, schools. I mean, they they're definitely a, a region that I think a lot of the world needs to to look at the blueprint and try and apply to their own nations. Right, because they are more balanced. If I mean, if you look at the Scandinavian countries, they are not driven by ideology. Like I think that's the main difference. Like if at countries like you know like France and everything that is still have that hint of communism that is never really going away. World War II has hit certain countries in Europe really hard when it comes to the soul of the country, and France was one of them. And you still start start to see that you still see that the ideology over people is the greatest evil and. When I see Scandinavian countries, I see a country that is trying to make things work, but not based on ideology first. That's really what I see out of them. Yeah. And I think that's with, with the NHS. I mean, you know, Britain has a very checkered history. You know, we've, we've done some things I'm so proud of. What we did in World War II was absolutely incredible. But what we did, you know, invading other countries is is disgusting, you know, so there's there's black and white. But the NHS is one of the things I'm most proud of because... They basically decided that every single person in the country should have healthcare. And I think that that system is so, so powerful if used properly because then the driving force becomes prevention. If the tax base is paying for healthcare, you want to push to have as healthy a population as possible. Yeah, I just prevention, prevention, prevention. Yeah. But if you have a profit based system, then it's the reverse. And then, you know, look at the statistics of the obesity in, in the US here which is the real conversation, like you said, which I want to get to next, then you ask yourself, well, you know, we call ourselves the greatest country in the world, yet we're the most overfed, malnourished country that I'm aware of. Right. And if you see like, yeah, you start to, you look at the numbers health-wise and it's abysmal. Yeah. And by the way, we're still not talking about obesity as a major risk factor for the coronavirus because that's too close to fat shaming. Yeah. Well, let's do it now because I, this is, the, this is the media platform that we can talk about it. But so that's where my, my stance for a long, long time is it keeps getting, um, presented like this is a virus. It's going to kill you. Wash your hands, stay at home, wear a mask. And there's no discussion at all about this is targeting people with, with, you know, with a compromised immune system. So that could be the, the cancer patients that we keep bombarding with these treatments. It can be the obese, the, the diabetic and the doctors and firefighters and, and, you know, paramedics that you're working into a ground who also have a compromised immune system. So let's talk about that. Right. So, okay. So what you see, something that hits the immune system really hard is that continuous low grade sympathetic response. Right. If you look at, at they talk about it uh, always, is that constant inflammation. I mean, like that constant low stress that you go through, not sleeping enough, always being on stimulants. Right. That has a major impact on your immune system. And one of the worst thing you can do for your people, I'm sorry to say, is being fat. 
like this is not about fat shaming, but the idea that we started promoting in the US that being fat, and I'm not talking like, you know, 20 pounds overweight, I'm talking like a hundred. I mean, like, you know, fat is beautiful and all that stuff. I'm like, this is not a beauty conversation. This is a health conversation. And if you're like a hundred pounds overweight, I'm sorry, but your health is at risk. You can look the way you want, but obese, we need to be able to talk about obesity. And in the US, this is something, if you look in the last few years, where less and less we've been able to talk about because of the idea of this is fat shaming and big is beautiful and all that stuff. I'm like, no, obese people have like, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes uh, or pre-diabetic. Uh, the, the list is endless. And it, ha it took a virus to really show that right now, even though no one wants to talk about it. But even if it's not a virus, like... The, that line that we're starting to, to go toward is only leads to disaster. If it's not a virus now, it's a virus two years from now. It's just not a virus two years from now. It's the pre, it's people like, a, once we have 100 million diabetic people in the US, here goes the economy. People have to understand that it costs about $1,500 a month to treat a diabetic person. I'm not even talking about the other stuff like high blood pressure, just diabetes. 100 million people, $1,500 a month right? $1.5 trillion. All right. So you cannot sustain this. Like this has been going on for a while and then we refuse to go to go at that. So nutrition and exercise have, we need to be able to talk about this and say, look, without nutrition and exercise, we are going down toward the cliff that is going to kill everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And then you say about the biggest beautiful. So that's the thing that as doctor, nurse, paramedic, that's bullshit. Because yes. the number of people that we've, you know, worked codes on that were in their 40s and 50s, there's nothing beautiful about a tube hanging out your throat while you're vomiting and someone's pounding on your chest and ribs are breaking. When the alternative lifestyle, if you'd been educated the right way and, and been encouraged to eat well and, and, and exercise your whole life, you'd be thriving for 30, 40, 50 years past that tragic day. So this whole fat shaming, you know, uh, angle is is bullshit when you see a fit man or woman using the gift that is the human body and thriving and having a long life um the alternative is never going to be oh no i'd rather be overweight and not be able to use my body and and just take pills and sit and watch tv no one would choose option b and by the way when they go with big is beautiful they show you models that are 25 always now what i want to see is an obese person at 50 and then we run, we run tests on that person. Let's see blood pressure. Let's see, again, like blood sugar levels. Let's see, can they breathe? Can they go up? Like, you know, big is beautiful. As you, bullshit. When people can't even, they live in a two-story house, but they have to stay on the first floor because they can't go up the stairs. How is that beautiful? Because you see that a lot. They can't even go up the stairs. Like, and again, Big and Beautiful is showing us 25-year-old people. Show me the 50-year-olds because I'll show you the 50-year-olds at the CrossFit Games. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay? Then, you know what I mean? Like, you, you can... This is so irresponsible. Like, people are talking about social, um, social responsibility. Can we talk about that then? Because social response... Big and Beautiful is so irresponsible socially. The system right now cannot sustain people becoming obese at this rate like the rate of obesity in kids and stuff like that this is this is an impossible situation we need to talk about it we need to be able to talk about it and again as you say preventable condition 
we need to educate toward nutrition and uh, an exercise. That's that's that should be at school. That should be doctors. Like the whole system needs to go at educating people on nutrition and exercise. Yeah, when it starts, I think yeah, the the first opportunity is the schools, and I I love my kids' school. It's it's incredible. We had some some bumps that uh, I've been trying to address, but one thing that I see is so hard for any school system here in the U.S. I think they were able to do it. I think Jamie Oliver kind of helped spearhead it in the U.K. But is just education on food in the schools, like serving healthy food for our children, getting them to understand what healthy food even looks like. And by the way, that conversation is bullshit as well, because they were showing that in France, they get like local produce, you know, like bio stuff, like great food for like, I think it was half the cost of what they eat in the US in public schools. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what so he did with them. He took the same budget. Yeah, yeah, or it was. I think it was half the budget of the U.S. of the U.S. on that. So it's complete. That conversation is complete bullshit. Is as usual. The ideology of capitalism is starting to get in the way. That's the ideology of your people. It is not true. There's plenty of countries that have managed to feed their kids correctly without having to break the bank. So that's not an argument. That one is bullshit as well. Yeah. Well, especially here, we live in a country with so many farms. You know, we have the ability yes. to grow for all these kids. And by the way, that counts for everybody. Everybody listening, go support your local farmer. Stop buying the shit at Costco and, and all that stuff because you have no idea how they're treating the, the cows or the chickens or all that stuff. Go to a local farmer. They ship to you. You just have to go there once to make sure he treats his animal correctly, that, he, that the cows actually eat grass, that the chickens are not kept like a hundred of them in the coop where they can't even turn. Uh, you know, like the cows are not eating like, what is what is it, like corn and candies? Or ground or up other cows. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. So you go once and after that, he'll ship you the meat. It's all good. There are ways to do this. Don't buy the shit at Costco. Support a local farmer. Yeah. Well, I think that's another thing I, th- I hope that's going to come out of this. So you're getting people that are like, oh, I can't get any eggs anywhere. Oh, well, maybe I'll go to one of these local farms that, that sells eggs. So I hope that there is a push to smaller farms again firstly for our economy for employing you know people locally for supporting the farmer who has basically fed all countries all over the world for you know decades and oh excuse me centuries and centuries but also you just think even the carbon footprint that we're buying food that was shipped from mexico or the other side of the u.s when someone down the road grows the same damn thing yeah, and actually we're talking about scandinavian countries in uh, in sweden which was the highest quality meat i've ever eaten um, they had basically by law all the supermarkets all the restaurants had to had to shop within a 20 kilometer radius oh really so you can only shop locally see that's such a good thing is initially you'd be like well there's nothing around there yet we'll give them time we'll, you know start building the, exactly. the infrastructure it's where they can course. Yeah, but it's a bitch at first, but that's how systems work. Like, look, like you build a system, like this, people don't understand how systems work. Like, for example, in Holland, one of the best things they've ever done was 40 years ago was to start to build infrastructure for bicycles. Right? So they started 40 years ago. So obviously, when you do that, you ruin the life of, of basically car drivers. Because, like, trust me, driving in Utrecht was hell. It was like you don't want a car in Utrecht because it drives you crazy. But everything was made for bicycles to the point where the laws was changed so that if a bicycle hits you, you're wrong. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Like a bicycle hits you, you're wrong. So it's crazy. Like everything is done for bicycles. Now, was that a headache for people driving cars? 
totally. Like the structure was not built for them. Four years later, everybody's on bicycle in, in Holland. Very few people own cars. The opposite of that would be the US, like for example, California or stuff like that. The second you start to build an infrastructure for cars, because there's too many cars, let's build parking lots, let's make the roads wider, all that stuff. All you do is making sure there will be more cars. So you will never diminish the congestion on the 405, ever. Because the more you build a structure for cars, the more cars will be sold, the more cars will be used. Yeah, well, I saw that even in, Jap- in Japan. Like we, when I worked there as a stuntman, we were given bikes. Then you know we were foreigners; we weren't able to to buy a car. And but they had a a pretty good system because the bikes in Asia are still pretty, you know, uh, a good means of transport. And it's amazing, yeah. Just everyone was out on their bikes. They had their groceries. They either use a backpack or you know the the panniers, whatever they call them, the bags on the bike. Um, and you realize that you really don't need a car for most things. Right, but you don't know that until they force you out of it. Yeah. Because yeah. if you have a choice, you're going to use a car because you're lazy. Yeah, and that's even even in places that do, you know, allow transport. Um, in England, you know, normally if you're in any sort of town, you drive from your house to the town, but then you park in a big kind of communal parking lot, and then it's all pedestrianized where you're actually shopping. So you're still walking a lot, even though you drive to the hub of wherever you're going. And, and uh, New York is another great example. A car is a terrible mode of transportation there. Most people do subways and walk. And again, you tend to see a lot fitter looking people in yep. New York than you do, say, the Midwest. Exactly. And then you'll see that happening in Paris sooner or later where the car problem is so bad. So they'll have to close basically Paris to cars out, out, outside of delivery or things like this. And then you'll start and people will have to walk and use bicycles. So like like any system, if we want change, it's not going to be slow and smooth. It's going to create some issues there and there. But it is we have to start somewhere. Like, I, again, as you, as you said, my hope is that that virus is showing to people that getting healthy is not just to get a six pack and be on Instagram. Oh, it's not? It's a necessity. No, I don't know. <laughs> Go figure, right? <laughs> uh, I'm still posting on Instagram, but that's another problem. Um, that that health actually impacts you. Like we have spent the last 75 years without a major war in Europe or the US, without really having being in touch with own mortality, if you look, right? And that's why I think also so many people are freaking out because now they're being reminded that, yeah, sometimes shit goes wrong and you don't get to hit the reset button. So that's what I would like to see out of this is people realizing like we need to make nutrition and training a priority. Like there's no, there's no other way. So stop cutting PE at school. Let the kids go play outside and provide, provide good food. It starts from an early age. I remember what Yaya was eating at lunch when she was in school in the U.S. And oh, my God, I was like, is that, how is that even possible? Yeah, and it is. And then, then I have the audacity to say, oh, this counts as so many servings of vegetables and it will be a pizza. Pizza, yeah, exactly. They still do that shit. And then Dori- pizza, Doritos, and soda. And I'm like, right, there, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so that's the thing. So this whole conversation is coming from – I see it a lot. Mark Bell, um, San Efforting, you know, I see them all posting yeah. the same thing. When are people going to talk about the obesity epidemic as being the main um, – you know, risk apart from from advanced age, 
for this coronavirus and it's not happening and people need to understand these are coming from people who their whole life have been advocating for health like you said not aesthetic bodybuilding yeah. overall health and finally now we have a foothold to to get people's attention but it needs to be said now before that focus shifts to whatever the next shiny object is and we cannot let the media because the media is a whore on, on all this as well because they were like like the media was in trouble financially. I think we all know this, right? Like the format the media is in with, you know, like MSNBC, Fox News, all that stuff. It's Fox News makes money, but everybody else, like the, the printed media is in trouble. Like that, that, that's an issue for them. And here comes the coronavirus. And like, trust me, they made enough money for the, for the next few years over that one. But they are driving sensationalism as usual. They are driving fear. They are, it's an infodemic. Because he makes you click on that button and then the next one and the next story and the next story, and which of course drive ads. And so they're all loving it. But what we need is to have enough voices of influential people saying, people understand what's happening. Age, obesity. That's, those are the first two ones. We need to address this. And my hope is that we have enough influencers out there starting to voice that that the media is forced to listen and change its tone a little bit. So yeah. hopefully this, this will be done at some point before, as you say, before we start talking about Kim Kardashian again. Yeah. And then you said about the the um, commercials. I mean, that's what people need to understand about our media here in the US is basically it's about selling advertising space. That's it. That's why there's so much clickbait bullshit. And that's what I love about the BBC is you pay your TV license in England, the annual fee, and you get BBC television, you get BBC news. So they don't have to clickbait you. They can just say, here's here's what's happening. And there's no sensationalism. Of course, they're going to be drawn into, you know, this whole thing at the moment. But the the 24-hour coverage, even, even ABC News, I used to post a lot of their stuff, repost on Instagram because they had awesome stories from all over the world, you know, fires and uh, civilian rescues and just really uplifting stuff. Every single post is a coronavirus update. You know, and they they got their little ticker tape. This is how many people have died now. You know, it's it's, it's nauseating. Shit out of you. Yeah. Always, it's always that nineteen-year-old, or like even if it's one in who knows, like uh, this is opening. But, but every single time, like when they talk to about, for example, about Sweden, they blast Sweden saying, "Well, the death rate is really high." I was like, "Because they are not testing, so of course the death rate is high." Uh, they. They, they, they always go like uh, like we say we can open, but then they find you a scientist that say, no, this has to go on for another six months. Uh, if we open right now, everybody's going to die. Uh, it's it's that just scaring the shit out of people. That's how they make money. That's it. And then like you said, so that, that um, hypervigilance, not be able to turn off the sympathetic, fear is doing that. And so it's breaking down the very immune system that people need to be resilient to this virus. Right. And then now that you're stuck at home, how many people, you know, like you watch TV, you don't have much to do, you can't train and everything. How many people are turning toward carbs, soda, alcohol, uh, anything to make the day goes by? Again, like you don't have socialization, you're stuck at home, like you're, you're not feeling good whenever you see people, they're edgy. So you're always in that sympathetic state. That drives cravings, cravings toward carbs, toward sugar toward all the stuff that, that are basically at the root of the obesity crisis, uh, about the root of illness. The, that slow sympathetic, like low-grade sympathetic response destroys your body. We can see that from inflammations in your shoulders, into your, your knees, your lower back starts aching. Uh, 
all that stuff. And so like you start to see the cravings towards sugar and alcohol and carbs and all that. This is how we got in a, in trouble in the first place. And this is where, where we're pushing people toward right now. We're taking them away from gym, getting stuck at home. And you'll see most people, like their nutrition will, will be worse and not better than usual. I mean, like I seriously doubt people are going to get on the protocol right now. They much rather, you know, have my, my guess is if we could study it is you'll see the carb, the carb, uh, um, consuming carbs going way high. Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially as I know a lot of the, the restaurants, including fast food restaurants are still doing drive through, which again, supporting your local businesses. I think that's good, but it makes the poor food easy access. Yeah. McDonald's does not need your support. <laughs> no, McDonald's doesn't definitely. We, we're trying to support the local family-owned businesses, but <laughs> right. Well, that's a good segue. So let's move over to that. I think last time we talked, you were just toying with your nutrition protocol to the point where you hadn't even, you know, done any anything official. You were just working with some of the the coaches that you'd, um, you know, had through the workshops. So tell me, tell me now where the the kind of the philosophy on nutrition has come to. Oh, yeah, right. So that advanced a lot. So, well, I looked at the nutrition based on the nervous system, as I do everything. But there's a few things that really struck me when it comes to, when it came to nutrition is most of the studies did not seem to talk about a simple, important fact, which is digestion. So what do I mean by that? It was like if you look at um at, at nutrition studies or like whenever we talk about nutrition, they talk, for example, about like. 100 grams of steak, right, is about 25 grams of protein in your body. But what about digestion? What if there are things that don't let you digest correctly? Then you're not going to get the 25 grams of protein in your body. So I was like, should not. So we should talk about the fact that there is a difference between food ingested and food digested. Would it not make sense? Right? And yet, for example, when it talks to protein, no one wants to talk about that. The fact that food ingested is not food digested. Most people don't understand like digestion, just because you put protein in your stomach doesn't mean it's going to be digested well, right? For, so I, I'm going to explain, but one of the worst things you can do for your stomach, for example, is having undigested, undigested protein in your colon that will kill the gut flora, the good gut flora, and can create a number of health issues. So I would think that having a good digestive system is one of the most important things. So are, are there things out there that can damage your nutrition? So if you start to, to look at the nervous system, the first thing you realize is that once you're in a sympathetic state, you cannot digest properly, right? So that's, that's been known for a very long time. The sympathetic state basically blocks digestion. It comes from a simple survival reflex where if you're going to need, if you're going to have to fight the bear, you cannot spend the energy on your stomach toward digestion. That's why like if you're really scared, you feel like puking. It's because you're trying to remove everything from your stomach. It's a reflex in order to have all the energy possible toward fighting whatever's coming. All right, so that means that if you're in a sympathetic state, you cannot digest well. So I was like, all right, so if I break down food by, let's call it digestibility, right? I can see that red meat is harder to digest than chicken, that is harder to digest than seafood. All right, so that means that if I'm in a stressed state, maybe red meat would not be the best thing for me to eat. Do, do I make sense so far? Oh, yeah, so far, yeah. I'm just letting you talk. <laughs> right, right, no, but what I mean by that is like it sounds fairly obvious, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, and especially with my population. So, you know, you've got a bunch of people walking around that are constantly unsympathetic. So that's, and then you see all the weight gain and ill health and there's no mystery behind it. Right. And so that means that whenever those people eat things that are hard to digest, like red meat, if they're not in a proper state, they're going to have a problem. So what is the proper state to digest food? It's a parasympathetic state. So now I was like, all right, so I'm going to cut basically sympathetic on one side, which means whatever activates sympathetic cannot be associated with you eating. And whatever allows you to promote a parasympathetic state should be what is associated with you eating. And so I started to divide it in two categories. And then if you start to look at what produces a sympathetic response, what do you get? You get um, stress. So for example, driving. So eating your car is a really bad idea, right? Especially if you're in the US, like on the 405 or whatever. Uh, eating while watching your phone, that's going to be an issue. But then after that, you got substances that can drive you in a sympathetic state, sugar being one of them. So that means that if you have sugar and red meat, you're going to run into a major problem because the sugar is going to promote a sympathetic response, which is in reverse, basically killing your digestion. So can you imagine what burgers do then with all the ketchup and all the sugar and the bread and the stuff? So red meat and sugar would be the worst combination. Yeah, well, that's where probably the, the meat sweats come from is basically an inability to digest the, the meat that you just consume. Right. So when you have too much meat and you have meat sweats, that's exactly what it is. It's a sympathetic reaction that comes from the distension of the stomach and a number of things. And that's why if you start to see the sweat happens on the top of the forehead, that's a sympathetic signal. So that means that once you have the meat sweat, you better stop because that means you're not capable of digesting the food in your stomach. Right, so you start to see that alcohol drives a sympathetic reaction. So that means drinking alcohol while having dinner is not the best idea. So wine probably is okay, not too much. But if you start to have like a, you know, like a hard alcohol based as you eat or right before eating, that's going to be a problem. So that means that having a whiskey when you come back from work because you're so tired and you're so stressed out right before dinner is going to drive your digestion the wrong, in the wrong direction. Right, so that's why the probably the the table wines are pretty um, weak wines that they sip a lot in in the, the Mediterranean areas, especially in, in Germany, is is much better to have with a dinner than, like you said, downing two schnapps before you start eating. Right, exactly, and so that's why because basically a low grade like that with a wine it allows you to to socialize and it makes you relaxed just enough that you can socialize, have fun. Because if you look at what promotes parasympathetic to good digestion, you start to see things like socialization, right? That's a ventral vagus nerve. You start to see um, things like, for example, taste and smell. So, you know, like your wife or their mother is cooking food and then you're talking, you're socializing with the family, you're smelling the food for like 30 minutes and then you're like, oh, I'm hungry. Your stomach is growling and all that stuff. It's because you are being put into the correct state to eat. So culturally, we all know that. Like growing up in France, the best place is when my grandmother is cooking and I'm talking to her. And then, you know, like we have maybe like a, yeah, like, like, like a glass of wine while talking while she's making food. And you're in, you're in a good place mentally. You're in a good place physically. The smell, the stuff, she makes you taste her food. You go like, oh my God. And you spend like 30, 45 minutes like that, which is enough to cut you off from your, from your, your day into having dinner. And so they, they are, Ways like that to promote or, or more or less destroy your digestion. 
This needs to be part of the conversation when it comes to food. Your ability to actually digest and process the food you're putting in your mouth. Right now, it's mostly the idea that whatever you put in is going to be going into your system. But that's not true at all. If you are very, very stressed, you won't be able to digest the food you're eating. So it's very easy to digest carbs, right? But it's very hard to digest protein. So that means that when you're in a, a stress state, the, you're going to naturally crave the carbs because they're easier to digest than you are the protein. So the key is to not just have carbs. The key is to try to learn to control the stress. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that so that we can get to food in a proper state, which allows us to digest correctly, which allows us to get the nutrients we need to get from, for example, protein and things like this. Yeah, and it makes it makes perfect sense. It really does. You think about people drive up to a, a drive through window, they get their food, they have a thing of soda with it. So you've had no preparation, your body's not ready. Then you drink in that sugary drink. And then, you know, ask how many people after a, a fast food meal feel great. <laughs> I'm sure the numbers are very low. You normally feel like crap after you finish. So you feel a little bit good because of the sugar you got from the, the soda and the ketchup. And then after that, 30 minutes later, you feel like shit. But if you do it every day, it's not as bad because you get used to it. Yeah. So and that's how we all got in trouble. Absolutely. So then, so what does the protocol look like as far as when when you eat carbs, when you eat protein? Right. So now, so to uh, finish the conversation on this, I also started to look at circadian rhythms. So circadian rhythms is what is day and night, right? You have to understand that all cell in on in the world, regardless, like any organic cell has a circadian rhythm, which means it has a on and an off. Right, so that's why we so we busy during the day. We sleep at night. Everybody has a circadian rhythm. So does your digestion, and so does your system. So that means that whenever it's on during the day, you're more toward a sympathetic state. At night, you're more you're supposed to be more relaxed, more relaxed toward a parasympathetic state. So that means that during the day is not the best time to eat protein. I know that's going to sound so weird when I say that and completely contrary to what everybody says, but in order to digest protein, you need the digestion to be to be strong enough. So that means that when you have protein during the day, you can have one or two things. Either you're too much in a sympathetic state and you don't digest it, and then it, it basically does a lot of harm to your, to your body, or you can actually digest the protein, but it puts you into a parasympathetic state because the body needs that to digest properly. And the parasympathetic state is the wrong state for the day. So that means that not that you're in parasympathetic, it's going to impact your sleep at night because that's when you need to be parasympathetic. And you cannot just be parasympathetic during the day and at night. The system does not work like that. And so people will say, yeah, but I want to be parasympathetic to fight the stress. No, you don't want to remove the stress. What you need to do is to learn to deal with stress better. Right? So you never want to remove the stressors. You just want to make, make people braver at fighting the stress. Right, so that means the idea is never to have protein to be less stressed. Protein should be at night because if used properly, it will allow you to sleep well. That's a longer conversation, but that was the idea. During the day, you're much better off having a lot of fat because that's a good source of fuel. And carbs, because carbs drive you toward the sympathetic reaction, should be used, for example, for training. Because that's when you want a maximum sympathetic reaction is during training. So the protocol was simple, which means we were having fats during the day, carbs when we train, and protein is at night for dinner. Okay. And just, just to be clear, and these are all with vegetables and, you know, it's not just yes. purely that. Yeah. yeah. 
veggies, because veggies like salads, carrots, all that stuff, zucchinis, they don't count. Uh, when we start to go into potatoes, sweet potatoes, rice, starch, that's a different ball game. That should be right before training or during training. Right. Okay. Now I know I've seen you post about it, but I, and uh, I caught it in some of the the podcast interviews that you did. But um, what about eggs? The reason I asked just because of the the um, the texture of them. They're obviously a very very different um, density than say a piece of steak. Would that be, still be something that you try and do in the evening rather than the morning? Yeah. Yeah, because they're still. Um it's they're not that hard to digest, but it still drives toward a parasympathetic state. Right. Like mm-hmm. there's other reasons to this that have to do with the gut flora, where I don't have the time to go into it. But um, protein and saturated fats uh, through the gut flora drive toward a parasympathetic state as well. So it's not mm-hmm. as simple. The problem is people think like the food gets in the stomach and that's the end of the story. That's how digestion works. You get acids coming, they break the food down, and that the, the nutrients are being distributed. It's the reality is it's far more complex than that. We have the what is called the enteric nervous system, which is a gut, right? That has, and you have to understand that the gut is his own brain. He has actually a set of neurons. He produces uh, half the dopamine in the body. He produces ninety-five percent of the of the body uh, of the serotonin for the body. He produces what oxytocin. He, pro- he, he has a what is called. A, the gastric, uh, ba- the basal gastric rhythm, which means it's like a metronome for your body. It produces a low-grade electric electrical charge that allows the body to keep uh, track, like a like a metronome when you play piano. Um, it's his own nervous system and its own brain, and that's just the nervous system. And inside of that, you have the gut flora, which is a hundred trillion, which is about a hundred trillion cells. So there's like a hundred times. Or is it a thousand more? No, no, it's a, or it's even like a million more uh, cells in your gut flora than they are in your entire body. So you are mostly a bunch of little aliens that decide whatever they want to do, because like they they organize in colonies and they all like uh, do different things. So some are for more like protein and saturated fats, others are more toward carbs. And so whenever you feed, whenever you have carbs, for example, you feed one colony of your gut flora versus another. And the stronger that colony uh, becomes, the the louder it talks to the nervous system and the more it's asking to be fed. So that's why like the more carbs you have, the more you start to crave carbs because we have the same bacteria in the gut flora as in the mouth. And so now it starts to play with your taste as well. The system is far more complex than people understand. That's why education is so important. And so I don't really have the time to go into this, but the idea is that Anytime you have protein on saturated fats, it drives you more toward the parasympathetic state. So that means that you can, uh, saturated fats you can have during the day, right? It's a good way to, to de-stress, but it won't take you too far into the parasympathetic state, so they still works. Unsaturated fats seems to drive you even less toward the parasympathetic, and so there's an entire conversation to have, to have there that is a bit more complex. So just to say it's fast during the day, Carbs when you train and protein, including eggs, is at night, not during the day. So I know people are going to go, oh, my God, like uh, you're going to lose so much weight. How can you build muscle without protein? So people know I'm about 232, 234 right now at probably around 10, 11 percent body fat, being six foot tall and while having protein only at night. So don't worry, you can still build muscle. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a second, but just to underline what you were saying. So you've got the circadian rhythm effects, digestion, 
And then you've got obviously, you know, um, having to be in a, a parasympathetic state is going to affect digestion of protein. So then you take the first responder, whether it's, you know, fire, police, EMS, corrections, doctor, nurse, whatever it is, um, that are on these shift patterns. You've basically got two barriers for them to be able to absorb the nutrients that they actually need to absorb. Yeah. 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 Like it's like working at night and, uh, you know, being always like that stress. It's it's wreck, it's just wrecking your system. Like it's circadian rhythm are being linked to, by the way, to anxiety. They've been linked to mental disorders. They've been linked to so many things. So like those continuous, like you know, like having a night shift and then you come back to normal and everything, it, it wrecks your system. You might not you might not even feel it because you're used to it, but it doesn't mean that your system does not know it's happening. So it, it creates a number of issues, and then. On top of it, you're tired, so you need stimulants. So now you start to go toward coffee, but that's a sympathetic reaction. So now you're still in the sympathetic reaction. And people have to understand, caffeine stays in your system for eight to nine hours, at least. So now you're always into that low-grade sympathetic response that, that is promoting inflammation, that is promoting poor digestion, that is promoting a number of health issues. So being able to, so you might not be able to control uh, your shift, that's for sure, but we can at least control the digestion where it takes takes a few weeks, but once you can basically try to run yourself on fats and you use carbs only when you need a true sympathetic response like training or something extremely physical, it makes a tremendous difference in people uh, in people's lives. So what we saw at the protocol in the last year is first of all is bettering sleep, which is always the number one constraint. Whenever I get someone like on a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, like nutrition stuff, it's Let's talk about your sleep. If your sleep isn't good, your system can't be good. So we start with sleep. So the protocol has helped a lot with that. Then what we've seen is we've seen people losing a lot of water weight in the first like week, two weeks of the protocol because it's allowing me to reduce that low-grade sympathetic response. And the inflammation. And that's exactly, the inflammation. Yeah, and you see, and that's that's again. So it's highlighting what I've been talking about a lot through this this pandemic as well. So you've got these men and women that you're not allowing to sleep, you're not giving time to recover. You know who who you are putting on a shelf as a superhero, and really a lot of them, when you look inside, are actually very broken down, and then not for a, a lack of passion for the job, not for a lack of grit, because they all have it, but that we are setting them up for failure rather than success. And now we're seeing all these firefighters and police officers and medics and doctors and nurses dying and what you're saying is what i've been saying that's not a mystery because we're breaking them down and when we need them most you've destroyed them we're asking so even in the most normal of circumstances we're asking too much of them as you say they cut the nhs they always like like you, you see that with the para paramedics in the u.s like we ask so much of them we are putting such a burden on them in the best of circumstances so what do you think is going to happen when anything happens? Then they're going to be the first ones to get hammered and, and who's going to start dying right away. And this is the worst possible situation for them because they already have a weak immune system from being tired and problem with the circadian rhythms and the food and all of that. Now we're making them more tired and we're putting them in contact with something highly contagious. So yeah, this is like, that, that's what bothers me. Not that we treat them as heroes because they are, but the fact that everybody is getting a pass, like in the government, in the media is getting a pass at killing them by calling them heroes. So they're just hiding the problem by saying, oh, you're such a good person. 
really? So how come you've been cutting like the funding and how come you haven't been taking care of all that stuff in the last few years? You don't get to wait until the shit hit the fan and then call everybody a hero. That, that to me is, is doing a disservice to the community. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's that's the whole point of this is to educate everyone and get them to you know, proverbially pick up the the, the forks, pitchforks, and the the torches, you know, and start demanding change. Because I mean, this is the ultimate time to show it to them. Yeah, this is like when when everything opens again. Like we need we need. I'm not calling for an actual revolution, but like <laughs> we need we need to torch the like something needs to be done. Like like what scares me the most is the idea that. Two months from now, we are back to exactly the same place we were six months ago. Yeah, yeah, and I think this is that's what's coming. This is a great opportunity to learn. But I want to I want to talk about the solutions. So you, for years, have been really uh, you know shedding light on a lot of myths in you know strength and conditioning and in nutrition. Um, I've had some so many aha moments through through your work and some of the other people that had on the show. Um, so let's talk about the templates now. So you actually have. Um, you know, different templates. It's a great time to, to, to use them at the moment because everyone is locked in their house. So if they have some of the tools, they can start doing it. But tell me about the templates that you have now in StrongFit. Right. So that was, we call it a functional integration template because it was really a way for me to put like all my, all my work together because I am so tired. The, the fitness industry, we have our own uh, responsibility when it comes to the crisis as well because if you look at training and nutrition, we have been selling it to people with by not me, but it's been done enough by putting like athletes out there with six packs and like those freaks, those those freaks of you know like can do so much work and and they're beautiful and they're fit and everything. And but we've been lying to people, telling telling them that if you do my six weeks, eight week program, you're going to look like them, where they actually will not. And we have, I think, what we see. We are partly responsible for the obesity problem in the sense of a lot of people have quit uh, on exercise and diet because they were promised, they were given lies and promised things they could never reach within that time frame, right? Like you're not going to look like a pro bodybuilder. Those are genetic freaks that they just one in a million, right? But they, they, we, we kept pushing those systems on people to the point where people would lose 20 pounds. And then in an, because they were being put in like a calorie deficit diet, or those unsustainable systems, right, of high training and the calorie deficit, just like on the biggest loser or stuff like that. And people after that, of course, they gain the weight back. So now, first of all, you wreck their systems by, by, by making them the, the, lose the weight so fast and so drastically. And uh, since they don't have you around anymore, they put it right back. So they wreck their system even more. And now their confidence is shot. And we've seen a lot of people losing 10 kilos, 20 pounds, and putting it back, back and forth, back and forth to the point where they actually quit. It's, but that's because the fitness industry was, more, was busier making money than it was promoting health. And so I got, I got really tired of that when it came to nutrition and training. And so what interests me now is to be able to address the fundamental issues in people's lives. So the template was for that. Of course, it makes you stronger. Of course, you can build muscle and all that stuff. But my first idea was like, I have to make sure people can sleep at night correctly and that they don't wreck themselves because every time you're injured, that means you can't, you can't train. And, and we have to take care of the nervous system. We have to take care of the low grade. Um, so basically taking people away too much from a 
objective-based mentality and more toward constraints. And so the template that I created was to follow, long story short, was to follow the nervous system. How does the nervous system work? And how can I, uh, how can I follow that to give the best way of training to people? And so that's why I came up with a template because I feel like I was at a stage where I could actually deliver that. And so that's why I actually stopped the templates for like six months because I felt it wasn't good enough for people. So rather than taking the money, I just stopped doing it. And then I test, kept testing, kept testing until I came up with a training system right now that seems to be working extremely well and that fits the, the constraints that I want. And so once I felt I was confident enough with that, I tested it on my mentoring program. I saw the results, the results that I wanted. And so that now I'm putting the template out there. And so far, uh, for people that have been following it, I've, I've heard what I wanted to hear out of them. Yeah, I think that's you hit on a very good point as well. That's that's the thing that's missing is is the health versus aesthetics. And we were sold, yeah, you and I, our whole uh, younger life were sold all these machines. And and you said everyone on every single freaking you know magazine was six pack abs or you know woman in a bikini, whatever side it was. And there was there was no mention of longevity, health, blood pressure, you know, blood sugar, any of that stuff. And then you go behind the scenes as you start become deeper into into the the fitness world, and you realize that the the the, the cycling on and off for the bodybuilders, where that's that day they look good, and then they blow up and they're covered in acne, and you know, and you realize, and then there's the Photoshop, and it's and it's such bullshit anyway. Exactly but, right. That's what that when you're behind the curtains, you realize that. By the way, they don't look like that, like 99% of the time. And they're freaks. Like they, They're guys that, that always walk around lean anyway, like the really ripped guys. They're always ripped. They can almost like – they don't eat what they tell you they eat. They don't train the way they tell you they You don't even know if they're doing drugs in the back. And they're just good looking. They were born with good genetics. They look good. They Like I, I dated enough – I dated like uh, Yaya's mom, like my, um, uh, my ex-wife. She basically would not eat for three days. She get a bit like, you know, a bit uh, chunky. She would not eat for three days and get a six pack. It wasn't fair. But she had like <laughs> that ridiculous, like for me to get to get at the body fat percentage I'm at right now, I have to do so much work, so much work. Tatiana, three days, no eating, puff, six pack. I was like, oh, screw you. But there's some people out there that have that just, look good and then that he comes like Richard is one of them Richard if he actually diets for like two weeks he has a six pack he looks like a bodybuilder but so those are the ones we use for the pictures but guess what 99.9% of people they have to do a shit ton of work to get there and we have been lying to them on how long it takes to get there so I'm not saying don't get a six pack I'm saying it takes time it takes work it takes longevity it takes sustainability and on top of it it's not about the six pack. It's about being healthy. If you're healthy, eventually you'll get the six pack. But if you rush the stuff just to get the six pack, you will fall off. It, is, it won't be sustainable. You will fall off that bandwagon and then you'll get fatter than when you started. And we have been responsible for a lot of that in the fitness industry. Yeah. Well, we just have to look at any article that says, here's how to ta- target belly fat. <laughs> oh, you can just, you can ask your body just to lose fat in one little portion. I didn't realize that. <laughs> I mean, there's so many fucking lies, just down, you know, barefaced lies from people that, that knew better because they were in that industry. And again, you're looking at that fitness model and she's so pretty and she's so good. And 
and stuff like that. And she does the abs and like, and again, you don't know what she's doing. You don't know the work she's putting. By the way, she does not have a night shift. She does not work 12 hours straight. Most likely that is her job is to look good. So she doesn't have to stress too much and da, 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 da. And she's been preparing for three weeks for that photo shoot because that's her job. And because I know a few of them, like it's not like behind the curtain, like I think what we need to help people is to pull the veil on the fitness industry to show what happens behind the curtain. That's what we need. But what we need is the, the IG models, the fitness model that are basically having 2 million followers for being pretty to actually explain to people what they do throughout the day. All those fitness models as well, like explain that you're on drugs. Explain, explain that you're on Anava, explain that you're doing drugs that I won't touch. Uh, you need to explain all that so that people can have a true understanding of what it takes to look like you, because then they won't have those ridiculous expectations that we've been feeding for so long now. We need to pull the veil on the fitness industry so that we can help people. I can't help people if they think all it takes for to get a six-pack is to do the six weeks of, I don't know, like RP strength or stuff like that, when all they show you as an as an example, I mean, not to put them, not to single them out, I'm just, I was just using a name. When they put basically models, right, out there to show like, look, this is what my system does. When I know some people on that particular system that don't eat like that, and they're still getting paid in order to say that they're part of the program. We need to talk about all that shit. We need to talk about all that shit because otherwise people don't understand how the fitness industry works. Yeah. I know one of my friends uh, was telling me a friend of his used to do all the the fitness modeling for the machines, you know, the QVC machines. And they would literally show up that morning, had no fucking idea what it was, never used it before, and then do that little shoot and then that was it. They were a bodybuilder. They didn't get it from that machine. Yeah, make money and you're done. Yeah. Right, and they have no idea. They say three sets of 15, even though that's not how they train at all. Yeah. And then, then the uh, before and after pictures, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that a lot of those are people that the, the uh, let me get this right, the after picture is actually the before, and then they just go off, off cycle for a bit, get fat, take another picture, and then use that as a revolutionary before and after for whatever system they're talking about. They've done that, but also know guys where they actually did the before and after picture in the same day. They just change the lining, make them suck up their stomach, uh, change a bunch of stuff, and there you go. Yeah. One of the funniest memes I've ever seen was, uh, you two can look like this in, in I think it was four hours, and then underneath it said, with our Photoshop class. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, my favorite one was is like before and after, and it was a white dude and a black dude. <laughs> no, that was still my favorite, because that's pretty much what this is. It's There's so much bullshit in the fitness industry, but the... Like, there's a reckoning coming up for the media, don't get me wrong, and for the healthcare industry. But I think sooner or later, the reckoning has to happen for the fitness industry. We have been bullshitting for far too long. We need to take responsibility for, for that issue as well, at least part of it. We are contributing to the obesity problem around the world, especially in the U.S., by feeding ridiculous expectations to people. And now, a generation later, they're all quitting. Because they go like, I can't look like this anyway, so fuck it. I'm just going to go back and eat uh, eat what makes me happy, which is sugar. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the so, thing. If you're in a, a boxing gym and you just kept getting punched in the face because the coach was telling you all the wrong things, at a certain point, you're not going to go anymore. Right. And that's exactly what's happening. Exactly. And so we have, like, again, like, healthcare for profit is a problem. But 
we fitness industry is part of the healthcare healthcare system, and there is absolutely no ethics, no guidance in the fitness industry. You do exactly what you want. I could I could come up with a protein powder tomorrow, get it in China because they usually come from the same three factories, put my label on it, and sell it as the greatest thing ever. And there's nothing anybody can do against that. And I could claim whatever I want to claim. Yeah. Well, what's your take on on supplementation? My my thing is obviously the average person should be able to get everything pretty much from their food. I see them being used for the most elite athletes to squeak out that one percent. But zero. I take zero supplementation. I chocolate chocolate milk when I drink. The only thing I have is uh, electrolytes, sodium potassium, because of the. Um, because of the protocol, you flush a lot of water. So I make sure like I'm never dehydrated. So actually I use a lot of electrolytes. Uh, short of that, I don't use anything. Zero. I don't do vitamins. I don't do anything. And everything comes from the food. You know why? Because you don't know what's in it. And the body has been around for hundreds of thousands of years and was fine without supplements. Exactly. That's <laughs> and by the way, you don't know what's in it. You do not know what's in it. Just because it says so on the label does not mean that. Like there's been so many stuff where uh, protein powder have been analyzed and there were red, red hair in it. And this is the least um, controlled substance ever has to be the powders in the fitness industry. It's absurd. Like it's been talked about, even Tim Harris talked about it. Like there is, you have, people have to understand every company out there, the big companies, when they start to make money on a product, they take part of that money that they put away for the lawsuits they're going to get over it. That's always been the that's always been the way. They, most companies out there, and that's we know that from inside, will put some very expensive shit in it, usually illegal, either speed or steroid in it, so that the first six months they get great results, they get a word to mouth going because in gyms everybody talks, so everybody buys that. That's why after six months, if you look, there's always a new and improved formula coming up. The new and improved formula means they took the expensive, expensive illegal shit out. And that's why that product after six months doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So I, I remember using Celtech. Remember Celtech back in the day? Oh, the yeah. One of the many, oh, yeah. <laughs> many supplements. Oh, right, right. So I'm 20, I don't know, five. That was 20 years ago. I'm using it and I blew up. I'm lean, I'm round, and I'm getting super strong in the gym. And the guys were like, oh, you're on steroids. I'm like, I swear I'm not. You know what? Turns out I'm pretty sure I was. Because Celtech had a reaction. I don't know what they put in it, if it was pro-hormone or steroids or whatever. But I can tell you something looking back. I'm pretty sure I would not have passed the drug test at the time. So that shit was so strong and worked so well. I was like, I love that. So I keep buying it. New and improved formula. I'm like, fuck. I guess creatine doesn't have the same effect on me anymore. <laughs> Looking back, no, I was most likely on steroids at the time. Yeah, and it's almost crazy as well. You have these conversations with people that have <laughs> all these supplements and you talk about, you know, organic food and they're like, oh, no, I can't afford that. It's too expensive. It's like, well, right. you're taking blood pressure pills, two, you know, two pills for your blood sugar. You're on creatine and protein and you're telling me you don't have enough money for good food. How about you... Don't take any of that shit or at least wean yourself off the the um, the blood pressure and everything by actually controlling your weight. You will have more than enough money left over for, for healthy by food. The way, even that is bullshit because they were, there was a documentary on some Chinese markets in New York where they were wa wanting to know 
why it was so inexpensive compared to the other markets. And what they found out is that those guys would drive to local farmers and get the product for cheaper. There we so go. If you're buying at Whole Foods, fuck yeah, it's expensive. But if you take the time to meet local farmers, you will you will not spend more money than you do on anything else. It just requires some of your time and commitment, which is a big the big world. Yeah. Well, the farmers markets here. I mean, I would come home. I'd spend fifty dollars and come home with about. I'm not exaggerating. Five grocery bags full of fruit and vegetables for fifty bucks, organic. Best eggs, best eggs you had in your life, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, the oak's supposed to be orange, <laughs> not yellow. No one knows that. Tomatoes are not that red, and yolks has to be to be orange. Normally, when you know open an egg, the egg white is stuck to the shell. It doesn't run liquid. It's actually like some kind of viscous stuff that looks disgusting and basically stuck to your hand. Yep. Yeah. But it tastes amazing. Oh, so good. <laughs> it's not even close. You make an omelette with that and you're like, oh my God, where have you been all my life? Yeah, it's amazing. And even like the, the fruit and vegetables, you know, people, yes. someone someone said, I can't remember, what, I think, was it Joel Salatin, I think, um, said, you know, if if you look at a piece of fruit or vegetable and there's not one hole in it from some bug, yeah. you got to yeah. ask why. Yeah, I love that guy, by the way. Um, and But here I get mostly like local products. I've yet to see a red tomato. Like, you know, like an apple red. I've never seen one. They all look like shit, but they taste awesome. Yeah, it's kind of like the fitness industry again. <laughs> it's yeah, not supposed to right? look perfect. <laughs> right? You're supposed to look like a, like an apple tomato, whatever that is, right? But there's nothing inside of value. And that's pretty much where we are. That's a great metaphor. <laughs> be be the organic tomato. <laughs> yes, be the organic tomato, please. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to just get one away, one more area, and then we'll make sure that we go over, you know, where we can find you and some closing questions. But one thing I haven't talked to with you about, but we've done, you know, the the uh, mental health side of of the the strong fit philosophy, when it comes to you know not only nutrition but the actual work as well. But I've never really explored grit. One thing that I find when I'm doing the sleds, the sandbags is there's a realization that it's your mind that's given up because you know that you can always take an extra step, but at some point you let go of that sandbag, you stop pushing the sled. What have you found over the last few years as far as developing that mental toughness just to go that little bit further, however far it is? It's So I'm, I can't go into this because it takes too long, but I've been, like the last six months of my life, I've been taught cognitive neuroscience, really. I thought, I'm, I'm self-taught, so that's what I've been teaching myself in the last six months. And one, one of the most fascinating things I've discovered is that pain is a social construct. That it is not a signal for your body, it's an interpretation from the brain. So they, they are, um, so that, it, and it, it's based on the social construct. Even when your your skin pitches, it has nothing to do with the skin itself. It has to do with how you're building that sensation in your mind and, and things like this. So there's been a, a number of times where I've, I've seen that the mindset, the how I look, how I look at at the sandbag and things like this have influenced how much pain I'm feeling when I'm going at it. So what I've been working on the most, me, is to never disconnecting from my body. Like you'll see that on sandbag walks. At first, everybody wants to disconnect to be able to go further. But that, in a way, is a mistake. When you do that, but that disconnection, that um, you're actually promoting 
feeling more pain, especially over time. So something that works really well is to try to connect to your body as much as possible. I don't have the time to go into all the specifics on that one. There's a major rabbit hole there. But like when you're carrying the sandbag and it hurts, you need to go with it. You need to do not disconnect from your body. On the contrary, try to feel wherever the tension is. Is it in your stomach, in your abs, in your legs, in your hammies? Connect to the body. It, it will, over time, allow you to go way past where you think you can stop. And so on that subject, very interestingly, on the template, I, I've noticed something. So I've been playing with something. And I want, I want the listeners to try that. You're going to do lunges, one leg, max weight for 15 reps, right? And so it starts to hurt at 10 by 15, your leg is toast. Okay. You're going to wait a little bit, two days, and then you're going to come back. And instead of doing 15 reps, same weight, you're going to do one minute AMRAP, as many reps as you can in one minute. What you'll notice is that with the same weight, you will be able to go to 20, 25 reps with what the session before at 15, you were done. It's fascinating stuff. It's because you don't approach the 15 reps like you approach one minute. Because one minute, you're not counting. You're just basically trying to last as long as you can. So it's the most fascinating stuff to try is that, is to do 60-second AMRAPs versus the number of reps. And you will see that on the 60-second AMRAP with the same weight, you will always do more reps. So they are those are not tricks, but they are ways like that to understand how your body works that allows you to improve performance. So I don't know if you notice on the sandbag carries that like many people, if they look at the finish line, they drop the bag. Oh, before they get to it, you mean? Or they, when they get to the... Like the, the hardest time is the last five meters. Okay, yeah. It's because you know it's coming to an end. That's the same thing with reps. So the entire thing there where there's a way to actually not go there. It's a longer conversation, but it's the most fascinating stuff ever. Try the try the lunges. If you want, I'll send you week one of the template. That'd and be great. You'll you'll try the lunges and try to do the one minute AMRAP versus doing 15 reps. And you'll see that at the same weight, you can push the pain way past what you could do counting reps. It, it has to do objective versus constraints. It has to do with a number of uh, factors to our neuroscience. But the fact is, it works. That's what the last five meters are so hard with a sandbag because now you're counting the steps, you can see the finish line. So there are ways like that to not do that. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, because that's so important for for our, you know, uh, professions. You might you might get to what was supposed to be the finish line and then something catastrophic happens and now you've got a lot more work to do. So, you know, I think to be able to tap into that is so important. Yeah, exactly. So there are ways like this to build that mental toughness that you need. But the better you understand how your body works, the more you can tap into those. Those are not tricks. Those are just an a skill, if you want. They're not tricks. They're a skill. There's a way to understand how your body works and how to go past that first freak-out mechanism of, oh, I got to stop, which is what you get when you do reps. You basically stop at the first block. Whereas when you do an AMRAP, you'll notice that you'll go past that first block because it's going to hurt a lot but you'll be able to go to the second step and third one. And if we can keep training you like that, you will discover that you have the potential to go way further than you think you can. And that's the first step toward mental toughness, whatever that means. Yeah, brilliant. All right, well, I know we're getting kind of close to the end now, so let me transition to some closing questions. But thank you for that. It's something that I think is very pertinent for us, and we've got to make sure that we don't do kind of like red line stuff all the time because we've got to have the recovery element. But I think that understanding that, 
yeah, sometimes you just got to put yourself in the pain cave, as you say, and, and, and train that because for us, whether it's a gunfight or, or structure fire, that might be literally what saves someone else or our own lives. Right. right. It's, it's understanding and it's a skill. Again, it's understanding that sometimes the body, the system is lying to you. Like you, you can't do more. It's just it's trying to trick you into not going there. And that can be dangerous. At the wrong time, that can be deadly. Yeah, yeah. I know you look at just the, the, the diversity of, of mental toughness in society. You have the, you know, elite operators, the SEALs and you know, men and women like that. But then you have the ones that are exhausted getting off the couch, you know. So there is such a spectrum and we need to tap into the higher end of them if we're going to push forward. Right, right. And so it's a skill. And like all skills, that means that we have that expression in French, which is uh, se faire violence, which means doing yourself violence. There are certain skills that you will develop by going there. Like there's just no other way. And so, again, as you say, it's not relining all the time, but you will need to put yourself into position to learn, sorry, to learn that sometimes the body is putting one block just to make sure you really want to do this or not, right? But if you listen to that voice, then you will sh- stop early. And so for the guy on the couch, it's not that big deal, but for first responders, that can be a deadly thing. So you need to learn that skill of being able to go past that first block. Beautiful. And what was the phrase in French? Doing yourself violence? Yeah, se faire violence. Love it. That sounds like a great phrase. Yeah, yes, it is. Because I think it's like you need that once in a while. Absolutely. Just question. Yeah. All right. Well, the first of the closing questions. Um, is there a book you've read in the last year or so that you love? Oh, yeah. There's so many. My goodness. You're joking. Uh, <laughs> I know you read a lot, so... <laughs> Um, yes, let's go with that one. Why greatness cannot be planned? It's uh, objective versus constraints. It's uh, two dudes that are in computer science that were trying to build an AI that could build a robot that could mimic u- human walking. And what they discovered is that an objective-based uh, search doesn't work. And they come up with what is called a novelty search. I mean, there's an entire thing there. It takes an entire podcast. And it's a fascinating subject because he, I could draw you patterns with this and economy with this and training. Like I think it's it's a fundamental idea on how things work. And it's 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 one one of those biggest discovery in my life has been that book because it phrased and it showed through computer science, kind of proved something that I felt and understood for a very long time. My entire life he just he put it on black and white in front of me. So for me, that book was a very important moment. Excellent. I haven't had that one recommended before, so thank you for that. All right, then um, what about a movie? Any new movies you love? I don't watch movies anymore, man. If I'm not reading neuroscience, I'm reading I'm reading uh, about another book or stuff like that. Okay. Now, I know you mentioned the documentary on, uh, I think it was the AI chess computer, I think, last oh, time. Yeah. Any- about AlphaZero. Oh, that was so cool. So any, any new documentaries you've stumbled across, or is it all books now? It's mostly books. Um, well, there's one I would like people to watch. It's called Ramen Head. It's the best ramen noodle chef in Japan. And uh, he won it like four times in a row. And the documentary is about him and, and his life and ramen noodles, obviously. But what I found fascinating out of this documentary is to see the life of a craftsman, a true craftsman who devoted, who's devoting his life to his craft. And how far he's pushing it. And how crazy he's going to sound and look to people. 
like people think I'm crazy. Like that dude is taking like Japanese man, Japanese culture. He's taking the art of craftsmanship to the nth degree. But I want people to see what is required to be successful. Like we live in a society where we are not promoting people being responsible of themselves enough. Where we are not, we are promoting short-term goals and stuff like that. Where we are not explaining to people is how long it takes to be good. 10, 15, 20 years. Everybody wants, they don't even want six months anymore. They want six weeks now. We, we need to go back and explain that to be good at something, it takes time. The shit takes time, energy. Like, to me, one of the most destructive things I've ever heard is you can be everything you want. No, you can be anything you want, but you can't be everything you want. You're not going to be the top ramen chef noodle while being a top neuroscientist, while being an astronaut, while going to the CrossFit Games. It's just, it's not true. It doesn't work like that. If you want to be good at something, it's going to require you to devote your life to it. Like it's not a job, it's a vocation. Like we need to hear from craftsmen again. We don't hear enough from them. Yeah, and I think the other problem is there's always a focus like you were talking with the sandbag on on the finish line and people are forgetting that it's the journey. You, you've got to do whatever whatever you want to get, whatever path you want to you know, go down, you have to do something that you enjoy every single day that you're working on that craft. Because there is no destination. You will never get there. If I learned something from the Japanese craftsmen is that like the, the, there was a uh, Jiro who was the best sushi chef in the world. He's what, like 87 now? He's still working. And he was saying, I learn about sushi every day. Right? So you'll never be done. That's the one lesson I got. It's, there is no destination. There is only the journey. You will never stop learning. Ever. Like if you're about sandbag walk, about movement, I will never stop. So there is no uh, destination. There's only the journey. Yeah, yeah. Nero Jim's Sushi was another great documentary. Right. Yes, it was. That's what for people to understand is you never stop, man. So if you want to be good, it's a life. It's a lifetime. It's a lifestyle. It's a. It's putting everything you have into one task. That's how you give meaning to your life. Absolutely, and it's, you know, with the fast food mentality as well. You know, the, the yes, you will get that immediate response that like you will be full. But the food will taste like shit and then you will feel like shit versus you go buy groceries and you, like you said, open, open a bottle of wine, have a glass if that's what you do, you know, take the time, cook the garlic, you know, get the kitchen smelling good, then sit down, phones away, have a conversation. There is so much more pleasure in that journey to even when you were sitting down with your family. But the overall, um, the quality you're going to get at that experience is, is, you know, a million times driving through a Burger King. It is. It is. And again, the, the consequences of your actions when you go to that drive through uh, Burger King is people, and that's, I'll, I'll blame the doctors on that one, like they are far too happy to give people pills instead of explaining to them that they're killing themselves slowly. I understand that that's not good for business, but it is the truth. You are killing yourself very slowly. Actually, not even that slowly anymore, but yeah. Yeah, no, not at all. All right. Um, the next question, is there a person you'd recommend to come on the podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you, you got Scott already, right? Um, no, Scott McGee? Yeah. No, he. Um, I know we've, we've gone back and forth, but uh, um, I haven't got him yet. No, we've been talking. 
Um, who, would I, uh, who would I recommend? Man, uh, that's a good question for first responder on everything. Who uh, I don't have quite an answer right there, but I'll think about it and send you something. Brilliant. Because there's, I'm forgetting like this. I know, I know there's someone. He'll, he'll come and then I'll send it to you. Okay, no problem. Thank you. Um, all right, the last thing before we make sure where everyone can find the templates and strong fit. But what do you do to decompress? Is there anything new that you found? Yeah, that's the, what we call the Disney December. Right. So I know it's going to sound crazy, but what I do is I go 40 minutes, a very slow jog. Right. Uh, people can even uh, walking is not enough. But the idea is, uh, and then I kid you not, this is how it goes. I go for a slow jog for like 30, 40 minutes. Like my heart rate is like 120, 130 max. And I listen to Disney princesses songs. I have never heard anyone say that before. I swear, I kid you not. The reason is that the Disney princesses songs have, it's a very high frequency uh, thing, right? And with the world going up and down like that, they promote, it's a, it's a vagal trigger. It's a, vent, it's a ventral vagus nerve trigger. And so it promotes safety. And so what I do is I go for a very slow jog so that I can stay with nasal breathing. And I never get my heart rate past 120, past 30 in order to stay within, not to go into sympathetic. And so I promote a maximum parasympathetic response by doing that. So we call it Disney December because I, last December, that was my, my thing for the Strongfit community is everybody has to do the Disney December three, four times a week. Was there a specific playlist that you chose? Was it from Spotify? Uh, yeah, I have one that I put. Moana, I like Moana a lot. I like Let It Go. I won't lie. Let It Go is always, Frozen is always my favorite. <laughs> yeah, I got, uh, I loved, um, Actually, like the old school, like Snow White was cool, but uh, I think Cinderella was my favorite. Like that woman had a, such a beautiful voice. Uh, so yeah, I got, I swear, 40 minutes of that. It works so well. It's absurd how well it works. I, I'm not going to question it. Like I said, you've been innovating so many different areas, so I'm going to have to like, try that myself now. I had thousands of people trying. I Everybody said the same thing. All right, now music. Do the Disney princesses songs. I'll send you the playlist. Do that one. Okay, I'm gonna try. It, I promise. Um, and then one more thing before we get to to where we can find you. I forgot to ask, but I'm so curious. Neoprene. What did you discover with that? Right. So the neoprene. The idea was to provoke a massive sympathetic response. I don't have the time to go into it, but uh, you know, have you ever done a nice bath? Uh, yes. Right. So a nice bath is what is you basically get pre. A, a sympathetic response by creating a very cold response to the entire skin. And the idea is to fight that by, go, go, by so breathing properly in order to maintain the parasympathetic side of things, which, which creates an arch to take you further, right? So the idea of the neoprene, but that's very passive, the ice bath. The neoprene, the idea was to promote a maximum sympathetic response through an active way. 80% of the weight of the sympathetic innervation is in the skin. So the compression and the heat, for many, many different reasons, create a full sympathetic response of the body. So I don't have time to explain, but I did a podcast on that. But what you see is that all the muscles that are in freeze in your body that you can't activate become warm. And they start, they start joining the party when you train. And then you'll find yourself at some point where you cannot keep the neoprene on anymore. And that's the end of your session because it will bring a full sympathetic response, especially out of muscles that are usually in freeze. And so 
it's been the best way we found to activate the sympathetic nervous system, but also to bring those muscles to join the party. Interesting. So just as a, as a tangent, very quickly, for us, we wear the bunker gear. So that's the entire suit that doesn't let any heat out at all. We're not going to have compression, but we are going to have that that heat. I find that awful, absolutely fucking awful when we get so hot. And then the point, like you said, where you're literally ripping it off when you're done working out. Is, is that a similar thing then? No, because you need the compression. Yeah, as well. Okay. If you're too hot, you're, just go- you're not going to be able to take it because you're going to activate something else. What I need is I need the compression on the skin with, with some heat, but mostly the compression. That has, sorry, that has to do with neuroscience on top of the pure uh, nervous system stuff. Long story short, I need the compression and a little bit of heat, but not too much. The idea is that the compression on the skin will, in a way, wake up muscles that you don't use properly normally. It's called a meridian axis. I have a number of things where the you know sympathetic innervation goes straight to the fat cells. So you start to see that spot reduction is possible when you do that. There's a gigantic rabbit hole. On okay, and that's regular neoprene like um, compression clothes. Two to three millimeters. Okay. So like a diving suit. Brilliant. So All right. you can have uh, just the pants and a jacket or something like that. So put the pants, put a jacket, put like the, those waist trimmers, something like two to three millimeters neoprene, put it on and then go do like a, don't do conditioning, do like a bodybuilding or a powerlifting or a strongman session. Okay, excellent. Well, I got all kinds of weird things to do now. <laughs> We're running around in a wetsuit listening to Disney. <laughs> you, you won't be the only, no, no, no. Don't do this. I'm <laughs> no, not I'm not. no. <laughs> yeah. So, but trust me, there's plenty of people who tag me on Instagram. I've done exactly that. So what I want you to do is basically powerlifting or strongman with it. Okay, brilliant. Well, as you know, I I love I love the way your mind works, and I'm I'm happy to be one of the, the you know test Bring tube yeah monkeys as it were. Um, so I'll send you I'll send you the template the first week, and you have to do two sessions out of that template with a neoprene on. Okay, brilliant. I have to find some neoprene. It's not something I own. I got a spring suit, um, short sleeve wetsuit no, from no, Jetski. You're gonna do the real thing. Yes. You're gonna do the real thing. Like you're gonna get the full experience. Yes, so I will get you some full monte. <laughs> All right. So for everyone listening, I mean, they're going to be fascinated by this conversation. We've gone to, you know, many different topics. Where can they find StrongFit online and, and the templates? Uh, StrongFit1 on Instagram and uh, StrongFit.com on the web. Brilliant. And you, you're still um, able to sell sandbags or are you guys sold out at the moment? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Like we actually, we sold like so many this month because people are stuck. So like the, the company that makes them for us, like... Um, Richard's uncle is actually making uh, masks, and so he, he's a, he was allowed to stay in business. And so we've been keeping on, we've been keeping the stocks uh, active and everything. So we can, we are, for that aspect, business has been very good for us. Brilliant, brilliant. All right. Well, I want to thank you again. I think I don't know if I said third time. It's the fourth time I think we've talked. So um, you know, so much information every time. You know, it's it's such a a pleasure to talk to you because you have. You know, such a, a different way of thinking, which is what we need. You know, we've had the same bullshit rammed down our throats for years and years and years. So it's people like you and many other people on here that are, you know, really reframing it. So thank you again for being so generous and, and hopefully shaking the cage some more. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs>